All right, everyone, welcome to our third session of 10 in Marriage Matters. We have notes each week, and so we have some notes for today. Larry has some there, if you need some. Everybody else good? We'll be on that first page in that set, which is 17 of the whole set. But before we get into today's session, just want to highlight a couple of things that are coming up. One is next week, one week from today at 5 o'clock, we have our next baptism. We schedule those periodically throughout the year. We have four folks who are getting baptized next week. And those of you that have been on the fence, just kind of tipping your toe in the water, as it were, wondering if you should get baptized. First, if you've come to Christ, let me answer that for you the way Jesus does. Yes, he, he commands that. But if you've never seen a baptism, then you should come next week. Come at five o'clock and you'll be able to see how that, how that goes and then talk to me about uh, getting baptized the next uh, time we have it. But next week is baptism at uh, five o'clock. And then the 21st, Saturday the 21st at 10 a.m., we have our periodic newcomers orient, excuse me, newcomers brunch at our house. So it's just brunch, it's at our house, and it's just us getting to know you better. There's no program, I don't teach anything. Uh, we just enjoy each other's company. But uh, we need to know how many people are coming for food purposes. And if you've never been to one of our brunches, we would love to have you come. So you can register for that at the information desk that's out in the lobby. And they have an invitation for you there that has our address and phone number uh, and the time that uh, we'll meet on the 21st, 10 a.m. to about noon. And it's just brunch and fellowship. So please register for that. We would love to have uh, one and all come to that. All right, today is, as I say, our third of ten sessions, and I want to encourage you to stick with it. You're here, so apparently you're sticking with it after the first two weeks, but uh, we are, the first two weeks we have, and today again, laying out some foundational information that is necessary for what we're going to look at in the subsequent weeks. But next week, we're going to be looking at communication. And in fact, the next week and the week after that, we'll be looking at communication. Then the following week at conflict in marriage. The week after that, forgiveness. Then after that, building intimacy with one another. Then the week following that, roles within marriage. And then our final 10th week will be a summary of what we have looked at. So beginning in our next session next week... Uh, this will start to get very practical. It is already very practical if you're doing the homework. And I want to urge you to do the homework, do the homework both the individual sections and as a couple, and you will benefit most if you do that from what we are what we are studying. So if you'll take a look at page 17, the title of today's lesson is Can You Relate? And I say at the top there, in the first session, we defined the purpose for marriage as... Each spouse helping the other to become more like Christ. Now, becoming more like Christ, or in more precise biblical language, to conform to the image of God's Son, in order to do that, it requires relationship. Because God is, by nature, relational. So if the purpose for which God has made us individually, and the purpose for which God has given marriage is for us to be conformed to the image of Christ, to uh, have restored in us the image with which we were originally made, 
then that image includes the relational aspect because God himself is relational. Jesus Christ, middle of that paragraph, is God the Son. He is fully God and he has the eternal role of Son in relation to God the Father. But you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and they are the perfect picture of unity in diversity. So think about marriage as being that. Two people who are to be unified, but of course there's diversity. There's a male, there's a female. There are different gifts, there are different personal traits, and yet God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are equal in who they are, as is the case with the male and the female, the husband and the wife in marriage, but they are different in what they do. And they are the perfect picture then of unity, even though there is diversity. And we were made to reflect that unity in our relationships, including our marriages. And that comes from the very first chapter of the Bible. We have it listed for you there, Genesis chapter 1. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And then God goes out of his way to make sure we understand that both male and female, the man and the woman, the husband and the wife in marriage, are both fully created in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God gave purpose to our first parents and he gave the ultimate purpose as us reflecting him back to him in who he is, reflecting his image back to him. That image has been marred. That image has been distorted, and it's been marred and distorted by the entrance of sin into God's world. After these words were spoken uh, by God in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 3, there is the fall into sin, and that didn't obliterate the image of God in humanity, but it marred it. And God has been in a restoration process ever since, restoring the image of God in individuals and bringing individuals together in marriage for that image to be refined and reflected by both. So I say in that next paragraph, when we are what God is, we will relate as God relates. When we're like God, when we're conformed to his image, then we'll relate to one another, and in this case in our marriages, we will relate as God relates, as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit relate. So when we reflect God's character, we will also reflect God's unity. And that's why I urged you then at the beginning of this session, session, stick with it. We will get practical with communication the next two weeks, all of that, as I said. But these are foundational issues because we need to understand what God's purpose is in marriage, what God's character is that we are to reflect so that we can reflect the unity in diversity that is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So in the middle of page 17, I say, first, we are not alone. We are not, notice I say, to be alone. That is, God made us to be in relationship with others. We're going to see at the bottom of page 17 that in the second chapter of the Bible, God says it's not good that the man be alone. So we are not to be. It was not God's intention for us to be alone. Now, why? Because, A, God has always related to God. 
Now, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but have you ever considered the fact that there's never been a time where God was lonely? And yet many people think that the reason he created us is because, you know, he's just laying around in eternity. And so what's he what's he going to do? So he needed us. In fact, there's a song. I have a I have a CD and the, the song says this. When the universe fell from his fingertips, he decided he wanted some fellowship. But the man and the woman would not submit, so he made a better way. That's what the lyric says. Now, when the universe fell from his fingertips, he decided he wanted some fellowship. Uh, as much as I respect the guy who composed that, and he's got some really good songs, that thing is wrong. You see, God didn't decide he wanted some fellowship. How long has God had fellowship? Well, the Bible teaches it's for as long as he's been God. And how long has that been? That's been a very long time, like eternity. Because there has always been God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God did not create because he was lonely, and God did not create because he was needy in any way. And that very foundational truth is important for us because it affects our conception of God and whether or not we think we are somehow fulfilling God, or that some, somehow God needs us in order to be all that he wants, he wants to be. God is complete in himself. And God has always had had fellowship. God has always related to God, so there's never been a time when he has been lonely. So I'll give you a reason as to why God created them in, in a moment. But he has always had fellowship within himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So he didn't create us because of that. God has always related to God. But B, God now relates to us. And in order for us to understand that, I just want to spend a few minutes on numbers one and two under under point B. The fact that God has different kinds of attributes, that is, God has different kinds of character qualities. That's what we mean by attributes. The things that make God who he is, his character qualities, his attributes. And he has both absolute and relational attributes. God's absolute attributes are the things that God is like in himself, totally apart from his creation. So, for example, God is love even if there were no humans around to know it. That's an absolute attribute of God. God is God is love. God is truth. And God is truth even if there was no one else ever created. God was truth before he created. God is holy. And God was holy before he created anyone or anything in creation. So these are essential character qualities of God's being. But when God created human beings, he had to, as it were, translate these into relationship between us and him. And so we say then, secondly, God not only has absolute attributes like truth and holiness and love, but he has relational attributes. After God creates humanity, now think about this. Truth, the truth that God always has been, now becomes his faithfulness towards his people. It's a relational attribute. You can count on God being faithful because God never lies. Everything that God promises, he brings to pass. But that's a relational attribute in that it comes to, uh, it comes to the fore as an expression of one of God's essential, absolute attributes. He's truth that becomes faithfulness. His holiness becomes justice. 
God is absolutely holy, but now in relation to created beings and then sinful beings, God's holy justice is made known, is displayed. Or God's love becomes grace and mercy. God has always been love, but in relationship to his creatures, that love is expressed in his grace and in his mercy toward us. Now, there's a passage in your New Testament that approximates what I'm telling you here. If you care to jot it down, it's Romans chapter 9 and verse 22. Romans 9, 22 and 23. And there, Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, asks the question, what if God, desiring to make, and then lists some relational attributes, what if he desires to make that known And therefore, he created for the very purpose of having this relationship in order to display the character that he already was. So if God's complete in himself, if God doesn't need us, if God's never been lonely, then why did he create? According to Romans chapter 9, he created in order to display what he already is. Or to put it another way, he created for his own glory. His glory is the display of his character. Now, That means we were created to not be alone. God has never been alone. And God created us to relate to him and to see him in these relational character qualities and then to display those both in our interaction with him and in the unity that is marriage. And you see that in the second chapter of the Bible where we have listed for you there, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So God makes this pronouncement. It's not good that the man be alone. So at that point, in the very, very beginning stage of human history, God has created one one human, and that is Adam, the male. And he says it's not good for this the man, Adam, to be alone. And he solves that problem by creating the woman, Eve. But it's important for you to note that God makes this pronouncement in verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2. That's what I have listed for you. Genesis 2.18, it is not good that the man be alone. But he doesn't solve the aloneness problem immediately. Rather, he waits. God has declared it's not good that the man be alone. But he wants the man to feel his loneliness first. He wants the man... To see that he, God, is the one who supplies his needs in his mercy and grace. God has already declared that it's not good that the man be alone. But he wants the man to see that it's not good that he be alone. So how does he go about causing the man to see that? Well, the next verse, verse 19, says this. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. And he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. I'll just stop there. So God has said it's not good that the man be alone. You would think his next action would be to create somebody that's suitable for him. God says, I'm going to do that, but he doesn't do it right away. The next thing God does is bring animals in front of Adam. Now we're going to see why it is that he does that. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that's what it's Uh, That was its name. So here God is 
creating this object lesson for, for Adam so that he feels acutely his aloneness, his loneliness. Now, how does he do that by naming the animals? Because <laughs> they're coming by two by two. And there's a corresponding female to every male. That's how they're going to replenish the earth. And so he's going by and he's, you know, he's uh, naming them. Uh, anteater. I wasn't pointing at anybody in particular. <laughs> but, you know, from anteater to zebra. And they're all coming two by two and he's naming them. And while he's doing that, it occurs to Adam that there is no one who corresponds to me. And that's why then, the bottom of page 17, I say, Adam now sees his need, and it's then that God acts to meet that need for him. The end of verse 20, which is, I'm sorry, still back on, is back on page 17, but it says, he gave names to all the livestock and the birds and all the wild animals, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And you're to feel the loneliness in that statement. Everybody else has got a partner. Adam doesn't. And so top of page 18. So because of that, now the Lord acts to remedy the aloneness that is not good. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. Just stop there. And if you can just kind of. Think about this incredible scene. God has made the first man. He has shown the first man that he needs one who corresponds to him, a helper suitable for him. The animal creation has this, but at this, to that point, Adam does not. Adam feels his loneliness, and God in his mercy and God in his grace moves to supply what the man needs. And he creates this woman. Tenderly out of the rib of Adam. And Adam is going to wax poetic. He's going to say, she is now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. God does this on purpose. He creates her that way in order to emphasize the unity that's to exist between the two of them. And Adam is thrilled with what God has brought to him. And God presents the bride, as it were, to the first groom. And verse 23 says, the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then commentary. Notice the quotation marks end at the end of verse 23. But this is commentary by Moses who wrote it in verse 24. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, that they become one flesh. Now in... In lesson session eight of our time together, several weeks from now, we're going to look at roles within marriage. And as we look at the fact that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit each have roles in in what they do, and God has assigned roles to the male and the female. Whatever we talk about when we look at those roles, understand that the very beginning of this relationship is right here, and the man and the woman were created One, absolutely equal. They're equal in the image of God. And that they were made to be absolutely unified. They were to be one flesh with with one another. And then as God introduces their roles, 
that they're to play. None of that changes, that they're to be absolute unity in diversity and that they're absolutely equal before God. And God has now, I say, related to man in grace, giving him what he did not earn or deserve. That's what grace is. And the man and the woman are to relate to each other in grace as well. So we are not to be alone. God has never been alone. He made us to reflect the unity and diversity that is God. But not only that, secondly, on page 18, we are not to act as if we are alone. So God did not make us to be alone. And even those and some of you in this room are single. You're taking this marriage class in case God has marriage for you in the future. I commend your wisdom for doing that. And time will tell whether or not that's what God has for you or not. God does not have marriage for everyone. And yet, whether one is married or not, we are still not to be alone. Marriage is one way that loneliness is corrected, but it's only, it's only one way. And for those for whom God does not have marriage, God has another family. And the Bible refers to his church as his household, his family. And so for every person who is not married, they still have, have family, even if your biological family is not around or you're estranged from them, you are part of the, the family of God. So no matter who we are, we are not to be alone, married or not. And secondly, we are not to act as if we are alone. So how does this relation, relational dynamic that God created us for, that is a reflection of who he is, how does that manifest itself in our relationships with each other. We ask the question on page 18, are you willing to relate by loving? So you, each of us, needs to ask the question, am I willing to relate to those that God puts in my sphere of relationship, in this case, a spouse, by loving? And the Bible's replete with commands and illustrations about the need for us to to love one another. Here is one in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, how did Christ show this love for her? He gave himself up. And what was his purpose in doing that? Verse 26, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So are you willing to love motivated by what's truly best for the other person and willing to give everything to accomplish it? That's what God's love is. God loves by giving. And greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for others, says the Bible. So how did Christ give? He gave and he gave himself, men. If we say we love our wives, then we have to ask ourselves the question, am I willing to? to do what is truly best and willing to give everything in order to accomplish it. Here's a working definition of love. Love is doing what is in the best interest of another. Love is doing what's in the best interest of another. And biblical love and Christ love is being willing to do whatever is necessary in order to achieve what's best for another. So that's husband's. But then you have, in the middle of page 18, this illustration from the life of Jesus about what love looks like. 
from 1 Peter chapter 2. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable for God. To do this, uh, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Number of characteristics of Jesus, who is our supreme example. When he was insulted, he did not retaliate. How would our relationships be if we did that? When he was insulted, he did not retaliate. He gave himself on the cross for the benefit of others. And notice that's 1 Peter chapter 2. That goes all the way to the end of 1 Peter 2 and verse 25. And then the next verse is chapter 3 and verse 1, and it starts this way. You see it there? Wives in the same way. Yikes. You read that about Jesus And you read wives in the same way now. This is the way you're to live in relationship with your husband. Putting their interests first. And you husbands are sitting here thinking to yourself, man, I love the Bible. (laughs) Got to love the Bible telling those wives what they need to do. Because, yep, indeed, the next verse says wives in the same way. But then it goes, and it goes on for six verses. But then you come down to verse 7, and here, guys, is what it says. Husbands, in the same way. Now, in the same way as what? Well, in the same way as what the wives were supposed to emulate. And what was that? It's the stuff in chapter 2 about Jesus not retaliating. And being willing to suffer for the sake of other people. In our relationships, we're being called to love, to give whatever is necessary for the best interests of our spouse. And that's for the wife and it's for the husband. And verse 7 says, husbands in the same way. And then it gives a boatload of information in one verse to we men. I'd like to just briefly go through that with you. Husbands in the same way, be considerate. As you live with your wives. Now when it says be considerate. You may take that as be polite. Because we use the word considerate that way. This is a, he or she is a considerate person. Meaning they say thanks and please and, and so on. Uh, but we also use the word considerate in another way. Like consider this. That is think about this. And that's the way it's being used here. Husbands, in the same way, think, consider as you live with your wives. So, in fact, in the King James, that verse says this. Husbands, in the same way, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. That's what it says. What it's saying, men, is this. If you love your wives like Christ showed love in chapter 2... If you're willing to do what's in the best interest of your wife, it means you're willing to know your wife. Consider her and consider her needs. Getting to know what her needs are so that you can lovingly then meet those needs. Be considerate as you live with your wives. 
And then it says, treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Not weaker intellectually. I know that from my marriage. (laughs) Those of you that know my wife know that to be true. So it's not weaker intellectually. It is not weaker in the sense of inferior or lesser. It is weaker physically and often emotionally simply because of the role the woman has called to play in bearing children and so on. And so men have to remember that in the way they treat their wives. So both the wives are called to Christ-like love as seen in chapter 2. The men are called to that as well. And the question for us is, are we willing to relate by loving? Bottom of page 18. Secondly, are you willing to relate by serving? By loving and by serving. Understanding that our spouses are made in the image of God means that we must not manipulate them. Treating them as objects that exist for our own purposes. We must honor and respect them as God's possessions. As image bearers, it's our responsibility to love them as God loves us. So consider the following two scenarios to see how manipulation takes place. So God is relational. God made us in his image. He made us to relate. That's why it's not good for any of us to be alone. For those of us who are married, that's our primary human relationship with our with our spouse. But in that relationship, we are to cherish and treat that person as a fellow image bearer. But because of sin, we tend to use one another for our own ends. And that's what manipulation is about. Now, we're going to see a couple of scenarios, just common everyday scenarios here in a moment. And in your homework for this week, there's a bunch of these scenarios that will help you see how you tend to manipulate your spouse rather than honor your spouse. So have I made the pitch to do the homework well enough? You've got to do the homework, okay? Now, top of page 19. Scenario A. Once again... James left a wet towel in the middle of the bedroom floor. It wouldn't be so bad except he leaves things lying around all over the place and he has promised many times not to leave his towel on the floor. There was no solution. If Sonia left it there, it would become a permanent fixture in their room. If she confronted him about it, he would usually let out a big sigh and then pick it up. And Sonia was tired of picking it up and tired of confronting him about it. This time, she would not speak to James at all until he figured it out on his own. All right, men, you are all thinking to yourself, you know, I've been there. I have been in mind reader mode. She's ticked about something, but she hasn't told me what it is. And when I read this this past week, I thought of a video clip from a comedian who's describing an incident in his marriage. It's three minutes, and you'll see it now. She has his temper. She has my, my wife has a temper, and I mean a temper. I'm not talking irritability and sarcasm. That's what attracted me to her. <laughs> there for 20 years. See, you got to understand, it's, it, it's how you argue determines how, how long you stay married. It's about communicating, understanding, and understand how your spouse communicates. It took me two years of marriage to figure out my wife will never tell me to do anything around our home. 
She wants me to do something, she'll ask me a question. From the question, I'm supposed to stand there and figure out what it is she wants me to do. <laughs> Simple example, say I leave a pair of my underwear in the middle of the bedroom floor, which frosts my wife. It's her word, not mine. Someone will cut her off on the highway. Oh, that just frosts me. <laughs> if I'm not frosting her, I'm driving her up a wall. Kids will come in, where's mom? She's up the wall with frostbite, that's all I know. You won't believe what put her there, son. It was that pair of underwear in the middle of the bedroom floor. You were looking at the most powerful pair of underwear known to mankind. They not only defy gravity, but they can change temperatures. And they're mine. So I leave my drawers in the middle of the room, which, by the way, is not unusual, because when I was a single man, I learned how to walk out of my underwear on the way to the shower. You get to the end, you hop right out of them, baby. And you leave them in the middle of the room for a good reason. You always have your underwear inventory at your fingertips. If there's eight on the floor, it must be four in the drawer. It's a good system. Worked for me for years. Then I got married and found out my system frosts my wife. So I leave my drawers in the middle of the room. Would my wife come to me and say to me, pick those up? Three words. Pick she Sam? No, because that would be simple, direct, and right to the point. And at that moment, I, her husband, would know exactly what she wants from me. I'd be able to process the information, make a rational decision as to whether or not I could deliver the request. At that moment, we would be communicating at the highest human level, the way God intended it, through language. My wife will look at me, look at my underwear, and then ask me, are those yours? Sure hope they are, otherwise I got a few questions of my own. What do you want? That's the only question a man has, isn't it, guys? That's it. What do you want? What do you want? Quit talking in code and tell me what you want. If I have to tell you what I want, then it doesn't mean a whole lot to me now, does it? Any night, I've walked around my home with a coat hanger strapped to my skull. Boys are going, what are you doing, Dad? I'm trying to divine what your mother wants. I'm telling you there's a signal in this home somewhere. Now, ladies, we'll pick on the men on communication as well at some point in the future. But that's funny because it's very real in many of our relationships, both from the man and the woman. That rather than using, he said humorously, as God intended it, but it's actually the case that God intended us to talk to each other, that God intended us to communicate to each other, but instead we do manipulative sorts of things with each other. Rather than honoring each other, we manipulate. And there are lots of ways we manipulate, again, in your, in your homework. But one of those is just let him figure it out. And we'll see if he really loves me. And we'll put a test to him and he has no idea that he's being tested. If you really loved me, you would. And you're asking what, what the problem is. Well, if you don't know, I'm not going to tell you. So that's scenario A. Scenario B. Charles surprised Jessica with a beautiful bouquet of flowers unannounced. I made reservations at Stars for dinner tonight. Jessica's shoulders drooped. 
He knows I hate being out on a weeknight because I have to be up very early to go to work, she thought to herself. Honey, thank you, but you know I don't like going out on weeknights. I've told you that before. Charles' smile turned to a quick grimace. It's just a dinner. We'll be back early. She knew we wouldn't be, they wouldn't be back early. No, I can't. I don't know why I bother trying to spend time with you. Charles snapped. Now, last time I'll mention the homework, I think, in our final few minutes. But you're going to be asked to look at scenarios like this and then asked to find the manipulation or the honor in, those, in the statements that are made. It's obvious in scenario A how the manipulation is happening. I'm going to give you the silent treatment and you're going to have to figure it out on your own. But then in scenario B, how is it, how is it happening? Well, he's trying to win her favor with the flowers. The flowers are important. He wants to do what he wants to do. And so he's trying to manipulate her with the, with the flowers. And this is the kind of thing that happens in relationships very often. One spouse will do something, perhaps do something repetitively. Then they try to buy the favor of the, of the other spouse. But we say in the middle of page 19, if our marriages are going to grow in love, then they must be built on a foundation of honoring our spouses, treating them as image bearers. People who have value, whether we're getting what we want or not. If we only show them favor when we get what we want, even if the things we want are good things, we will be practicing a form of manipulation and actually sucking the love out of our marriages. Now, friends, there's a mouthful there. And many, many, many marriages live there. That, that I, will, I will respond to you favorably if you're, if you're doing what I want. And if we're doing that, then we are not loving. Think about, again, the one we're to emulate who is love and whose love we're to express in our relationships. Did he love us because we're doing what he wants? <laughs> His love for us was shown precisely in the fact that we're not doing what he wants. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to just think about your relationships in general, your spouse in particular if you're married. And I want you to think about how you show favor to your spouse and when you show favor to your spouse and whether or not it's when he or she is doing what you want. If that's the case, you're not loving as Christ loves. To put it another way, you're not loving at all. Then that next paragraph says, if manipulation describes the attitude that violates love, then honors the attitude that fosters love and leads to acts of real love. Honor means regarding others as having value and importance. In fact, most often the Bible encourages not just to see others as our peers, but to give them more honor than we give ourselves. So that means in your relationship, you need to look at your spouse and you need to say about your spouse, how do I see the image of God in my spouse now. Depending on your spouse. Depending on what a louse he or she is. That may be easier or more difficult to see. I grant that. 
But every last human being is made in the image of God. And every last human being bears the vestiges of the image of God, even in spite of of our sin. And so you're being challenged and will in your homework to look at your spouse and to think about how the image of God is reflected in them. And how, because I love God, therefore, and they reflect the image of God, then I need to love and honor them. The Bible says this, last paragraph. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or out of vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Often when we manipulate our spouse, we take on the role of their judge and master. We interact with them as if they exist to meet our desires or to protect us from our fears. When we treat our spouse with honor, we're more likely to take the role of a caretaker and a steward. Now, let me... The next page is your homework, so you don't need to turn there. But go ahead. (laughs) But let me, in our final minutes, just explain those last couple of sentences. We interact with them as if they exist to meet our desires or to protect us from our fears. And when we do that, we're acting as their judge and master. Here's why God has brought you into my life For you to do X for me. Rather than I have been brought in your life to do for you. And that's what love is. It's not looking at what I get out of it. It's what I give to you in it. So that's why the last sentence then says, When we treat our spouse with honor, we're more likely to take on the role, rather than a judge and master, a caretaker and a steward. So now I look at this relationship as one that God has entrusted to me. That's what a steward is, a manager. You could write the word manager next to that. That this is a management responsibility that God has assigned to me. He has given me this person in my life, and he has given me this person in order for me, a la what we saw on the previous page, husbands in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. He has given this person to me in order for me to get to know her in the case of the husband, consider who she is, and then take care of her. Now, the wife is to do the same thing. She's to look at this husband as one that God has entrusted to me. I'm a steward of this relationship. And I'm to find out and continually learn who he is and what he needs and what love looks like for him. What doing in the best interest of him, looks like. Now, if both spouses do that, you have a great thing. But I want to give you hope if you're in a marriage in which only one spouse is doing that. You may be here now and you're going, uh, I'm the only one cooperating in this venture. I'm praying for my spouse, but he or she is not a Christian. They don't buy any of this stuff. They don't live that way. For them, marriage is a business contract. You do your piece, I'll do my piece. If you don't do your piece, I'm not doing my piece. This is a 50-50 arrangement, say they. So what do I do about that? In our, in our class, we're going to have at least one testimony and possibly two from people in our church who are going through that very situation 
and tell you how God has used their willingness to love even if not loved. To love as Christ is loved and how God has used that in the individual's life. And, and how, not only has God used it in that individual's life, but how God is, is changing the attitude of the spouse through that as well. So I want to give you hope with that. And then another testimony from a couple who went through that. Where you had one spouse who was having to do virtually all of the giving over a long period of time. And God in his grace worked through that to produce something beautiful. Now, I'm not going to stand here and tell you that it always turns out the way we want. The Bible does not teach Joel Osteen theology. That is, if you do the right stuff, it just all comes out great. So I would be lying to you if I told you that. I can tell you this, that no matter how the circumstances go, whether the circumstances in your marriage change at all, that I can't guarantee. I can, I can guarantee this. Even if the circumstances don't change, you will. And as you change, you will deal with those circumstances in a profoundly different way. So over the next couple of, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to hear personal testimonies of people for whom that, that is true. All right, next week, we're going to begin to look at communication for the next two weeks. One final time, do your homework. And let's pray together, all right? Father, we thank you for this time that we can consider the most important human relationship that you have created, that of marriage. Lord, we thank you that you are the author of marriage, that you have made it for very explicit purposes. And you have not left us in the dark as to why you've created this marvelous institution and why you have brought male and female, man and woman, husband and wife together. Thank you for your word that instructs us very clearly. Thank you for the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is love and who demonstrated that love when he walked among men and women. Lord, we have to have your aid in order to do what you call us to. We say with the great Saint Augustine, we say, Lord, grant what thou dost command. That is, grant us the ability to do the things that you command, because within ourselves naturally, we can't do it. But by the aid of the Holy Spirit, we can do what you have called us to carry out. And so we ask you this week to do that. I pray for those who may be in loveless marriages, loveless from their spouse. And I pray that you would grant them, them hope. And by your spirit, you would grant them the ability that they do not have within themselves to love without being loved, to love as Christ loved us. And Lord, I pray for those marriages that are, are currently strong, that you would protect them because it is your institution. It is an institution that is under attack and marriages can and do crumble. And so I pray that you would help each one in a strong marriage or a relatively strong marriage to cherish that and enhance that and strengthen that. Go with us this week as we do the homework that will help us clarify how it is we treat our spouses. Help us to do it individually. Help us to do that homework together. And as a result of our time together, Lord, may you make us more like you. Those that are single, those that are married, those that will be married. We ask you to bring us back safely next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.